and welcome to the For the Love of Duluth podcast. My name is Tom Jamison. I moved to Duluth about six years ago, shortly after I bought a business here called Lake Superior Medical Equipment. Prior to that, I was a lawyer in Minneapolis for about 25 years. My co-host is Yvonne Myers. Yvonne is a lifelong resident of Duluth, a registered nurse, and not coincidentally, the marketing director for Lake Superior Medical Equipment. So why did we decide to do a podcast called For the Love of Duluth? It's simple. We love our town and its region, and we want to talk about cool things that are happening here. If you already live in Duluth, we hope this podcast will provide interesting tidbits of information that will add to your appreciation of Duluth. If you are visiting or planning to visit Duluth, we hope our podcast can become a place where visitors can learn more about this town and the cool things that are happening here. Neither Yvonne nor I are celebrities, so the stars of this podcast are clearly not us. The star of this podcast is the city of Duluth and of course the guests who join us to talk about their lives and what they are doing in Duluth. This is for the Love of Duluth podcast. Duluth is known for its unique attractions and one of the best and most special is the North Shore Scenic Railroad. The Heritage Railroad travels 28 miles between the city of Duluth and two harbors, giving passengers a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Taking off during summer months through the holiday season, the railroad brings passengers some of the most beautiful and scenic views in the Northland. The North Shore Scenic Railroad started in 1990 and has evolved over the years into the popular destination and educational operation it is today. Prior to becoming one of Duluth's most famous spots, the railroad served as a major link in our local transportation system and played a huge role in the development of the famous Misabi Range. It has a long and storied history that we will dive into in a bit. Today, the North Shore Scenic Railroad welcomes more than 100,000 passengers a year and attracts people from all all over the world. Yes, the world. Not only is it fun for all ages, but it also brings millions of dollars into the Duluth economy each year. It doesn't get more Duluth than this. Trains take off from the historic Duluth Depot, located in the heart of downtown. One of the biggest driving forces behind the North Shore Scenic Railroad and the corresponding Lake Superior Railroad Museum is Ken Bueller. He is the general manager of the North Shore Scenic Railroad and the executive director of the Lake Superior Railroad Museum, two roles that go hand in hand. Since he started, he, along with many others, have worked hard to make the railroad the success story it is today. When Ken took over the operations, the railroad was broke and had only 30,000 passengers a year, a number that has more than tripled since he took over. His hard work and dedication to the Lake Superior Railroad Museum landed the title of Best Transportation Museum in America by USA Today, which is no easy feat. Today, the Lake Superior Railroad Museum and the North Shore Scenic Railroad are regarded as some of the most popular, interesting, and historic spots in Duluth and our region as a whole. And Ken's passion is a big part of why. Also, the Executive Director of the Historic Union Depot Corporation, Ken graduated from high school in Wisconsin and went on to attend college there, graduating from the University of Wisconsin in 19. 
1975. From graduation to the role he holds today, Ken has worn many different hats. You may recognize him from his time as a TV journalist, weather forecaster, or radio personality in the Twin Ports before he landed at the North Shore Scenic Railroad. He even owned a company with 13 different radio stations in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Here to talk more about his fun career path and his day-to-day role at the North Shore Scenic Railroad is Ken Bueller. Ken, thanks for being here today. Well, Yvonne, thank you very much for having me. I'm honored to be here and more so after that wonderful introduction. Thank you. You are very kind. You're welcome. Before we get into the railroad itself, Ken, let's start by talking about your upbringing. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small little town called Port Edwards, Wisconsin. Uh, The frame of reference might be the Marshfield Clinic, which was just down the road. Okay. And then um, my dad always said it was a small town. It would always remain a small town. On the population sign as you came into Port Edwards was 1,894 people. It was always 1,894 <laughs> people, according to my father, because every time a baby was born, some guy left town. So, <laughs> keep, in, keep in mind, this was before cable. So uh, there really wasn't much to do in a small town. But uh, I, uh, I started there and uh, grew up in a small town. And I kind of liked the atmosphere. One of the things I know you guys really work for Duluth and are all in favor of the wonderfulness that we get to enjoy every day that we get to share with our guest visitors. But Duluth is kind of like my small town and I like it. Neat. So you graduated from the University of Wisconsin and you held a bunch of awesome jobs since. Can you take us through your career path from graduation to where you are now? Well, you know, my mother always said I would miss the lake if I ever left here. Uh, But when I graduated from the University of Wisconsin over in Superior, I couldn't wait to get out of here. I had uh, graduated with a double degree in business administration and radio TV film. And I so wanted to leave. It was the time in 1975, the steel plant had closed. Downtown was a bombed out ruin. Uh, the community just was in a in a pit and a spiral downward. In fact, there was the time, if you remember, uh, there was the billboard at the corner of the freeway that said in big black letters on a white background with the last person leaving Duluth, please turn out the lights. And uh, that unfortunately was a sentiment held by many. Uh, and myself among them, I could not work hard enough to get out of the Twin Ports. I sent radio audition tapes everywhere. I sent tapes and resumes any place in America that had an opening for the all-night person. I didn't care. I just wanted to get into broadcasting and get out of Duluth. And I sent out hundreds of tapes and resumes. And it was a problem, of course. I sucked. (laughs) (laughs) And I could not get a job except for the one that I had landed during college working at KDAL on weekends and doing some uh, weather fill-ins when necessary. And um, they offered me a sales position. And I thought, well, eventually I was going to have to get into sales anyway, because my goal was to own radio stations. And so I said I would take the job for $80 a week. And that was the beginning of my broadcasting career in 1975. And um, I haven't looked back. It's been a great industry to be involved in. You get to meet everybody as a general manager of a radio station and as an owner of one, or we had 13 at the time of our, uh, when we sold the company. Uh, But everything in the community passes through your office. If the news people bring in the news stories, you get to hear them first before they go on the air. The salespeople come in and tell you who's expanding, who's going out of business, who's buying what company. You learn everything in the community first, and it is just so gratifying to be a part of sharing all that information over your airwaves. So I've been very, very, very fortunate. Other jobs I've held along the way have been, um, uh, we owned an ad agency for a while. I hated that. Ad agencies eat their young. Um, The other jobs I've had have been uh, circuit announcing for home boat sport, travel camping cabin, outdoor 
door scenic shows, bar and screen door companies. Uh, doing those, I did the circuits for that for many, many years. And then a private consulting firm, which I wasn't very good at. And uh, then I landed this job at the railroad. In ex- un- well, I wasn't expecting it. It just kind of evolved. Well, I want to hear about all of that and how it evolved. And I, I also love trains. And so I was really excited about this podcast. But now I'm really excited about your story uh, because it's it's intriguing. I'm also envious because you've got a great radio voice, something that I don't. Yvonne's got a good radio voice. She does. Have, you, I, you, do, you both have yeah. wonderful voices. Well, uh, Yvonne I, does a great job. Here's what I know about voices. Enough cigarettes and scotch, and you can have one of these too. Yeah, see, <laughs> see, and I, I, I'm not, a, I, I don't smoke cigarettes and I can only I don't so, anymore. I can only have so much scotch, but I think that, I think that must be it. I always, anyway, I have the terrible, terrible no, you're fine. radio voice. My mom always said I had a great face for radio. Radio, but, but not, not a good voice for radio. So you know, my English teacher in college, because I can't spell. I, I just it's it's I'm, I'm dyslexic when it comes to spelling. Yeah. But I, I say the same thing to uh, radio announcers and uh, people that have to speak in public, as she told me about my spelling, which is if you have something to say, somebody will always correct your spelling. And if you have something to say, people will listen to you. And that's the important thing. Interesting. So you wound up with 13 radio stations. And when did you when did you sell these? <laughs> so I always wanted to own radio stations. That was my goal from uh, before I went to high school. But see, I always wanted to own a major league baseball team <laughs> it doesn't look like that's going to happen it's a little so easy you, it's you a little easy it's a little easier to get into broadcasting you your dream happen that's what i that's what's so cool well i was working for uh the ritter family and here in duluth uh at wdsm and kzio and um through a series of incidents uh the radio stations were going to be sold and the Ritters had a long-standing practice of selling to their employees, uh, their loyal employees. Now, I hadn't worked there that long, but Patricia McNulty had worked there for many years as their sales manager. And so the decision was made, actually by Mrs. Ritter, that the radio stations would be sold to Ken and Patty. And so Robbie came back to tell us this, and Patty said, no way. And I said, <laughs> I said, well, it's going to be sold to somebody. And if they've got kids, you and I are out of work. <laughs> so uh, we hunkered down, figured it out. The Ritters were extremely generous with the terms. And um, we bought the radio station. And we were both right around 30 years of age. Oh. And everybody said, well, that's so cool that you guys are doing this together. And um, boy, you know, you guys should really date. So we did. And then they thought, well, you guys are such a good couple. Maybe you should get married. So we did. <laughs> then three years later, we got divorced and then bought 11 11 more radio stations together. Oh, interesting. Wow. <laughs> now, the good news is that Patty was a lot smarter than I am, and uh, she saw the change in the industry. Um, you know, back in the day, you could only own 15 of these things, and they didn't make any difference where they are. Uh, you could only have two in a market, and you could only have 15 total. That was the rule. And we had 13, and we were saving those last two for something special, because we were in Duluth. We had four here. Uh, we had Pine City. We had two. We had Siren and Balsam Lake. We had Detroit Lakes, Virginia. They weren't really what I would call, you know, major markets. 
Right. So we were saving those last two spots for something major. And then all of a sudden, one day the FCC woke up because of Red McComb and uh, said, you know what? We're going to deregulate this industry and you can have as many of these things as you want. And Patty came into my office and said, you know, this is going to change everything. And of course, me, <laughs> head in the sand, I go, oh, nothing's going to change. This will be the same. We'll still have a news department. We'll have a sports director. We'll contract for a, you know, a farm director. This is all not going to change. And um, she says, well, then buy me out. Well, we were too broke for that. So we sold at just the right time. And the industry has changed. I think right now the radio stations in town are multiplies of six and seven and eights. And they have less employees than we had with two. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a, a completely a, different industry. So did, you, did you sell to Red McCombs? No, no. Actually, we sold to some friends of ours. Uh, we uh, peddled them off a little bit at a time. We wanted to make sure that the owners were going to be interested in the communities. I'm not saying that major broadcasters aren't, because I think they still are. I think if you're in the broadcasting industry and you're dedicated to it, you've got all those same emotions and goals and objectives of serving your listeners and the community that you're in. I don't believe that has changed. I think what has changed changes the technology has allowed that to be done with fewer people right. and because of that you don't have the human resource that we did back when we were running stations so in my hindsight it was uh, wise that we got out when we did because I think today I couldn't do it I don't have the skill set and um, I don't think I would have the motivation that we had back then um, so it's changed and Thank goodness, Patty saw it coming. <laughs> well, that's that, that is uh, that's that's cool, and uh, glad you got out uh, successfully when you did. Yeah, Red McComb's kind of an interesting guy, right? He starts as uh, with car dealerships, right, and then winds up with uh, radio stations, stations all, all over America, America, right? Winds up owning mm -hmm. a NFL team, all right? Vikings, that, which yeah. didn't do <laughs> so didn't well. go well for him, oh, no. and I'm glad. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, no one, no one seemed to, no one uh, seemed to bother when he left town. Yeah. There was not a party. Well, there was many parties. Yeah. Yeah. But he wasn't invited to right. any of them. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, so you sold the radio stations and you did some other stuff. But at some points, you wound up in your current position. So how did that happen? Well, Tom, um, that's an interesting story because I never would have predicted this for my life path uh, at any time. Uh, so we sold the radio stations uh, and that took time. So um, we needed something else to do. And keep in mind that these stations, when everybody says, well, you got out, you sold all these stations. Why didn't you just retire? Why didn't you just take the money? and go to the Caribbean. We were so leveraged <laughs> that there was no big payday. I mean, we did well. We covered all our indebtedness and all our obligations, but there wasn't a big walk away. So we needed a job. So we partnered with Zenith Research, which was a national research company based in Duluth and still going uh, to form an ad agency, figuring if we had a client, one of the things we could sell them would be uh, market research, which is what Zenith did. So I started that and we went out and we got some accounts. One of the first accounts I got was the North Shore Scenic Railroad. So they hired me on Thursday and we had a, a board meeting on, on Monday. So on Thursday, I get the job. I'm all excited. Monday, we're having a board of directors meeting. So I go to my first board meeting and I meet the board. And Gordon Jonason was a board president at the time and walks into the room and he's just sullen. And he goes, well, we've been talking about this for months and you all know the situation. You've all seen the reports. Today, we're going to have to do something about what we all know. And that is that the Railroad Museum and North Shore Scenic Railroad are bankrupt and we can't afford to pay our bills. And um, so he looks at me. Sorry, Ken. Oh, by the way, they had fired the guy that hired me. He 
was the executive director at the time. He said, I want to know that Mr. So-and-so uh, has been fired. He was fired on Friday and uh, he hired Ken on Thursday. And Ken, we can't pay you, so you're out of job on Monday. There were four employees at the time that worked at the museum. And uh, Gordon said, um, we have to let one of you go or you all take a 25% cut in pay so that all four of you can stay. They all took the 25% cut. Wow. And I thought to myself, well, you know, we did get kind of a payday. And I, by this time, learned that I wasn't suited for the ad agency business. That just wasn't what I wanted to do. And I thought, eh, what the heck? I said, I'll I'll stay. I said, I can work for six, seven months without getting paid. It was February at this point. I said, I can work six, seven months without getting paid. I said, I, I, I think we can do this. And they said, well, you want to work for nothing? <laughs> Have at it. So, so when was this? Yeah, this was this? about uh, 1999. Okay, just okay. Uh, just before, uh, yeah, about 1999, 2000. And um, so I'm walking down the hall from this meeting, and Tim and I wish I had thought of this. I wish I could say I am the greatest executive director in the world, but this was not my idea. So we're walking down, and Tim is the uh, curator at the time, and um, he goes, "So, uh, you know, are you going to do this?" I said, "I haven't a clue." <laughs> he goes, "The reason we're bankrupt is because the gold finds that owned the railroad." Uh, before the railroad museum took over the operation of the railroad. And the gold finds, of course, had deep pockets. So when they were losing money, they just reached in another pocket and kept the thing going. When their three-year lease was up, they were gone. The railroad museum takes over and takes the gold fine model because that's all that existed at the time and started paying people. Well, that was the mistake uh, was these people want to be paid and um, and they don't take no for an answer. So the railroad museum had used up all its reserves, all the reserves of the railroad and all the money coming in and it still lost this incredible amount of money. And Tim goes, so uh, we went bankrupt because we paid people when other tourist railroads in our situation, nonprofits, use volunteers. We've got about, back then we had about 400 members of the museum. Today we have have over 1,100. Um, so we've grown that as well. He goes, why don't we just train our members to become trained people and have them volunteer? So that's what we did. It was his idea. Our first, and he trained them. Our first year, 80% of our crews were volunteer. And with the exception of the pandemic, which put a damper on things. Um, all of our crews have been 100% volunteer since. And that was the turnaround. It wasn't me. It wasn't, I mean, anything. It was the volunteers that stepped up and said, you know, instead of paying an engineer back then, you know, 20 some years ago, $24, $25 an hour, we'll do it for free. And that was the secret. And it still is the secret today. So that's the secret. If you, you don't have don't, to pay you people. You don't have to pay workers. <laughs> so that's, I've been trying to figure out what, what's going on here. I look at, I look at the business model and now I'm realizing I'm, I'm screwing up here. I'm, I'm, that, that, I'm paying every employee I have, I pay. <laughs> that's the business model to go I got, for. I, I, I post job, I should be posting on volunteer board. Exactly, right. So, um, Monica. I think you can do that because you're, you're a historian. Nonprofit, yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, no, nonprofit, and trains or something about trains. Something it about trains. Brought, I remember boy. Monty Goldfine, of course. Uh, Monty and Irv were the Goldfine brothers, and they learned from, from uh, Fanny and Irv how to how to be business people, and they were great business people. And I wish I'd listened more and talked less in the times that I was with Monty. But he worked Saturday mornings, and I worked Saturday mornings. We had offices from each, just down the hall from each other in the Masabi building. And halfway through the morning, Monty'd come down and lean on my door frame and go, "Got your numbers." I said, you got yours? Yeah. 
come on down. So that meant he would show me the numbers because they still owned the Vista fleet at that time. So I was one of their industries. And so uh, we would go down to his office and he'd slide the newspaper across his desk, or just not newspaper, he'd slide the paper. That was how many passengers they'd carried on the boats that week and how much money they made. And I'd slide over ours showing how many passengers on the train we had and how much money we made. And he always had two things to say. If it was a good week and the numbers were good for both of us, he'd say, you know, we would have made money at that railroad if we didn't have to pay people. <laughs> and if we both had a bad week, uh, he'd look at the numbers for both of us. He'd go, well, looks like we both lost to the lake walk. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was, it, those were, those were fun times turning that, that business around. And you have, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like, I think something in the introduction here that your uh, passengers numbers have tripled. Seems like there's always people milling about in the train museum as well. And I, I, this is, this is sort of near and dear to my heart. I'm old enough to have actually traveled cross country by train with my family and on the California Zephyr. And my very first trip to Duluth was in a field trip going to a grade school in Minneapolis. We took the train up to Duluth, fell in love with Duluth and fell in love with trains. I'd been on trains before, but that was just kind of fun because my parents weren't there and we were just kind of hanging around. And anyway, we got to, we, we, we did the Vista fleet and then hadn't spent a lot of time uh, back in Duluth. But when my son was uh, about two and a half, uh, we came up here with him and we just did Duluth and we rode the pizza train. And that would have been probably around 2000, something like that. So you must have been. I would have, I would have just been starting. Yeah. Yeah. So I could have been conductor on your train. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that, that's possible. So I assume there's some training that goes on to be a, a train engineer, right? I mean, I couldn't just do it. You'd have to tell me how to do it. And here's the brake. That's a really important lever. Yeah. Here's the brake. I don't know. It seems very technical to me, but, but it's, it's interesting. You can just do that. We do the, we do our training of our volunteers, uh, it is far more rigorous uh, than it used to be. Uh, the FRA, Federal Railroad Administration, and we're a fully FRA Class II railroad. We we do the exact same things that Union Pacific, BNSF, Canadian National, and CP do. We we have the same standards. Um, so there's 48 hours of classroom work, and then there's uh, 40 hours of OJT, and another hour, uh, eight hours of observation when you're in charge, and then you get your conductor's uh, license, and then you go up to fireman and engineer from there. Uh, and it's just more more time uh, on the train and more classroom and uh, and a test. Um, and I'm glad that we do that because it's yeah. all about safety and uh, we can't afford one accident. Right. right. So um, I think and our by the way, our safety record is impeccable. We have had no FRA reportable incidents that were caused by the railroad. We've had cars hit us and those aren't necessarily reportable because we haven't had enough damage. Right. So our, our safety record, knock on wood, is uh, 100%. And we're not going to do anything to change that. Right. And the other good thing is you generally, at least when I see the trains, it's you're not going 70, 80 no. miles an hour. <laughs> you know, you're, you're up because people want to see things. Right. Uh, that'd be silly to go that fast. I'm glad that you uh, had early railroad experiences and are sharing those. Um, people don't really have that much of an opportunity today like you did or I right. did uh, when we could get on trains and come to Duluth and so forth. So one of the things the North Shore Scenic Railroad does, and I say this about all museums, all museums are just stuff and nothing happens with that stuff until somebody tells somebody else their train story. Do you have a moment? I'll tell you one that I think is just fabulous. Absolutely. We have in the museum the RPO car, which is the railroad post office car. It's a mail car. 
They actually sorted the mail on the car between stations. So they would pick up mail at one station, sort it with all the other mail, and then leave a bag of mail at the next station. And they would pick it up on the fly. The train wouldn't stop. It would uh, hook, would come out and grab a, a bag of mail that was hanging from a pole. It would throw in and the guys working inside would start sorting that mail for further stops down the line. And when they would get to a station, maybe it wasn't even a station that the train stopped at. It might have been an express train because usually that's what carried the mail. And they would just throw the bag off the train onto the platform. And that's how the mail was delivered to smaller towns. The train didn't even stop. Whoa. So I come to work one Monday morning and there's a note on my desk. She goes, um, I don't know who this is going to go to, but I have to tell this story to somebody. We were in your museum this weekend and we were on that post office car. And my grandmother is in her 80s and um, she's not going to be with us too much longer. And as we walked to the post office car, she said, you know, your grandfather used to work on one of these. And we looked at each other, us children, and we had never heard this story. So we said, well, what do you mean? And she goes, well, you all knew I grew up at a railroad station because my dad was a station master. Yeah, we all knew that. Well, every day the train would come through and would drop off the mail bag. And the train didn't stop, but the mail would. And she goes, one of the things I had to do at the station for my dad was I would go out and wait at the platform. And then when that mail bag came off, I would run and get it and bring it in. And we'd wait for the postmaster of our town to come and pick it up. She goes, and every day I would wave and smile at the guy on the train car that threw the bag of mail out on the platform. And one day the train stopped. <laughs> the young man got out and introduced himself and asked if he could call. And I brought my dad out and my dad said, certainly. And that became your grandfather. Mm. Wow. And the end of the story and the end of the note was, if it hadn't been for our visit to the post office car in your museum, that part of our family legacy would be lost forever. Wow. Nothing happens until somebody tells somebody wow, their train story. Amazing. That's amazing. That's amazing. All right. Well, that, uh, with that with that great story, we are going to take a break and we're going to hear a word from our sponsor, Lake Superior Medical Equipment. And uh, we will be right back with Ken Bueller. And I promise we're going to get into the trains and we're going to talk about the trains and uh, all the fun things that you can do on the, on the train. So thank you, Ken. We'll take a short break here. You know what is hard to find these days? Good customer service. These last couple of years have been rough for customer service, no matter the industry. At Lake Superior Medical Equipment, we have kept the focus on good customer service because we value your business. We have real people who answer the phones and real people who answer your questions. No automated messages here. Our customer service is second to none. It always has been and it always will be. The team at Lake Superior Medical Equipment loves serving the Northland's home medical equipment needs, no matter what those may be. We provide unparalleled support to our community's healthcare professionals and enhance our customers' independence and quality of life. It all begins with our customer service. Are you in need of medical equipment or have a question? Lake Superior Medical Equipment can help. Reach out to our friendly staff members and we will take care of the rest. Get contact information at lsmedequip.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook at 
Lake Superior Medical Equipment and follow us on Instagram at Lake Superior Medical Equipment. All right. We are back with Ken Bueller, who is the general manager of the North Shore Scenic Railroad and executive director of the Lake Superior Railroad Museum. So, Ken, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Railroad Museum. I think I mentioned that I uh, back when my son was uh, two and a half years old, uh, we did a, a Duluth visit and uh, not only rode the pizza train, but we toured the um, the Railroad Museum, which is a fabulous museum. I, I remember just being sort of awestruck by how many trains, how many locomotives. You have some massive locomotives, old locomotives. Can you talk a little bit about what someone who's maybe never been to the, the train museum would see when they uh, get there? The Lake Superior Railroad Museum and indeed the St. Louis County Depot were the brainchild of five people back uh, actually during some pretty desperate times in Duluth in the late 1960s. Don Shank was uh, the general manager and vice president of the Duluth-Mesabian Iron Range Railway. And he always said, someday there's going to be a train museum in Duluth. That vision was shared by a couple of other people. Leo McDonald, who at the time was St. Louis County attorney. Wayne Olson, who was uh, with uh, housing and urban development here in the city of Duluth. And Frank King, who was kind of the historian for the DM&IR and a very good friend of Don's. And Shirley Swain, who I would describe as a early community activist. They didn't call people like her community activist in the day, but she certainly was. Of the five, she's the only one that is still with us. And, and they had a vision. Back in 1971, when Amtrak was formed, if you wanted a train station, you could have one. The railroads were out of the passenger rail business and they were delighted. They wanted to get out about 15 years earlier, but unfortunately the federal government wouldn't let them until 1971 when Amtrak was formed. And then all of a sudden the cutbacks could happen. Amtrak could say, we're not running this train anymore. And there was no fighting it. Back in the day, if the railroad said, we're not going to run this train anymore, everybody could fight it. And the train kept running at a deficit. Didn't make any difference. But with Amtrak saying no more trains, there were no more train depots necessary. And railroads were looking to get out of the real estate business. So they were giving them away left and right. Question is, what do you do with one when you get it? Especially one as big as the Union Depot in Duluth, which used to serve five different railroads. Uh, You know, they had some 50 plus trains a day and almost a million passengers a year. And it was just one of three depots in the downtown. So what their vision was, was to bring in the arts, culture, and history organizations that were scattered around Duluth. The Chisholm Museum was in the old Chisholm Mansion uh, out at 21st Avenue East in that neighborhood. Uh, The Duluth Playhouse was up above a men's tuxedo shop in downtown on 1st Street. Um, The Arrowhead Corral didn't have a home. The Minnesota Ballet uh, played from stage to stage. Uh, And their goal was to bring in all these arts, culture, and history organizations, put them under one roof, let them live there rent-free, subsidized and paid for by a world-class train museum that would charge admission. So you could charge admission to see all this. And then all these organizations, Duluth Playhouse, Duluth Art Institute, Matinee Musicale, Arrowhead Corral, Minnesota Ballet, Duluth Superior Symphony Orchestra, Duluth Playhouse, all these organizations could then take their entire resources and focus on their mission, putting on the best plays, the best ballets, keeping the history of the county alive. And all that would be paid for by the county of St. Louis, owning the building, which they've been great stewards of. The city of Duluth rewrote hotel motel tax legislation at the state legislature to make sure that the depot got a cut of that money coming in and that there was revenue from selling admission tickets to see the building, but most importantly, the train museum. And that was their vision. And when the building opened to the public in 1974, it was on the front cover of Time magazine as an excellent reuse of an old historic depot building in America. Wow. That's that is that's amazing. And what great ideas. Now, I'm sure it hasn't been a one smooth ride 
No. There was that bankruptcy thing we right, talked about earlier. Right, right, right. <laughs> a, a bump in the road or a bump in the railroad, we should uh, we should say. But what would you see? Is that what you wanted to well, know? Or well, I, I, I kind of went off track, Well, yeah, but so I, think to speak. That's, I think that's really interesting because <laughs> I think people uh, who visit the train museum should know that there's other opportunities at the train museum, other other things to do at the at the depot. And so I think it's I think it's great and it's a, it's it's a great history of the museum itself. So when did when did the museum start putting together its exhibits? Don was an incredible man and I wish I again like Monty Goldfein, I wish I'd spent more time listening and less time talking. He had this vision back in the 60s. He didn't quite have it all put together because he didn't know where it was going to happen uh, until 1971 when all of a sudden, but they actually started the collection in the late 60s. Don's idea of collecting was to call his buddies in the railroad business and tell them one simple thing. Find the oldest thing you've got on the property, fix it, paint it, and send it to me. And it started to come in. Uh, some of the first pieces were the Russell snowplow, uh, the rotary snowplow. Um, he had in mind this back in 1961 when they retired the Mallee locomotives, the huge, big Yellowstone steam engines, uh, one of the centerpieces of the museum. Well, he put one away for the museum, one away for Proctor and one away for Two Harbors. I mean, that's how far ahead he was thinking oh, about this. So I would say the Yellowstone is one of our biggest attractions. Some of the other pieces in the collection are the very first steam engine ever in Minnesota, the William Crooks. Uh, there was no track here. It was hauled up the Mississippi River on a barge. Um, we also have the car Masabi, which was the car of the Merritt family, the seven iron men that found the iron ore on the Masabi range. Um, we have the predecessor of that or the successor of that, the car Northland, which is on the National Register of Historic Places as the first all steel rail car ever built. And then, you know, museums uh, have more than just what you see when you walk through. We have a complete archives and library that has some of the founding papers of all the railroads in this area, the Duluth and Iron Range, Duluth, Masabi, and Northern. It, just a great collection of, uh, we have one of the finest timetable collections uh, in the country. You know, railroads used to, you know, so you know where to go and when the crane comes and where to go. Well, these things were priceless nowadays right. for the information that they can tell you. Uh, for instance, um, about a year, well, maybe a little longer than that. A couple of years ago, I got a call from uh, this woman who was writing a historic novel and she had her heroine uh, take the train from New York City to Fargo, and which would have been a several day trip back in right. the time period. And she wanted to make sure that she was getting this person on the right trains at the right time in the right cities and came and found that information in, in our library. Oh, interesting. So um, all interesting. these things, you know, work together. So there's more to a museum than, than what you see when you walk through it. We're very lucky in that during the time that they were building the museum, they were also building the freeway. So there was a little thing called highway substitution funds that then Mayor John Fito thought of, which is highway substitution funds are nothing more than a fancy name for a bribe, which uh, they did to the city of Duluth so that the freeway uh, could go where the freeway is today. And those highway substitution funds gave us the Lake Walk, gave us Canal Park, and in our case, gave us Depot Square, which was the ability to enclose the depot building, put that roof on it, put the buildings, those little shops that you see right. around. There's a uh, there's a, 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 dentist, a doctor's office, there's a, a, a bar, restaurant, there's the Zelda Theater, there's a, a Bridgman Building, there's Branches Hall. All these things were built with highway substitution funds, uh, which we were in the right place at the right time to get. And so we've got an old town exhibit, we've got the museum itself, and of course the tracks are all the ones that were originally there when that building was built in 1892. Amazing. So are you continuing to add to the collection? Good question, Tom. And yes, uh, we are constantly adding to the collection, although space is becoming a problem. You know, it's not like we're collecting stamps or coins or something you can put in a drawer. 
more. Right, you know, we're right. collecting 85 foot long train cars and 120 foot long steam locomotives. And they're not light. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. You're right, Tom. They're not. You can't just. So we have to be very. Pickup truckers. We have to be very judicious in what we collect and make sure that we can give it a home. When I was growing up, my dad was the one that had the railroad Jones really bad. Everybody always says, Ken, well, you must really like trains. Well, I love history. Right. And railroads are a big part of our history. So, but my dad, on the other hand, he had the railroad Jones. And um, he's a guy that heard one too many times in his life, sir, step back from the locomotive. <laughs> sir, please do not touch the train. And he would take us to a railroad museum that will remain nameless. Uh, but it helped form my theory of how we run our museum. Uh, we went to this train museum, which was in a vacant field with track, circular track. And they had some great stuff. Oh, did they have great, they had a big boy in this collection. They had a GG1. They had the Eisenhower train from World War II. They had such fabulous pieces outside, derelict, subject to the weather and vandals. And I remember in high school, finally, my dad would go, let's go see the train museum. And I would go, no, I, I, I can't go there anymore. It hurts too badly to watch these things. Now, since then, that particular museum has put their stuff indoors and has made their, they're not what they were when I was there. But that left something to me. Do not collect something that you can't take care right. of. Right. Because we don't own this stuff. None of this stuff is owned by the Lake Spear Railroad Museum. We are merely stewards of it. And our mission is to preserve it and pass it on to the next generation in a manner that is sustainable, that can tell the story of why we saved it in the first place. What's important about it? to you. And that's our mission. Preserve what we can, tell the stories about why it's important to the next generation, leaving that object in more, far better condition than we got it. Well, it sure seems like you're doing a great job and you know, being true to that mission because uh, it's, and it's been too long since I've been at the museum, but it's exhibits, the displays, they always seem to be in, in just impeccable shape. Well, Tom, thank you very much for that uh, fine uh, compliment. It's a, a labor of love. And again, just like the railroad, all that restoration work done by volunteers. Uh, our shop uh, today is volunteer day at the shop. And we probably had, oh, I don't know, it was a slow day. So we only had about 12 or 15 people out wow. there uh, scraping paint, painting, uh, welding, uh, fixing equipment for the railroad and restoring pieces for the museum's collection. Well, that's amazing. It's just that, that kind of dedication. Uh, it's one thing to maybe dedicate and give some money to a cause, but to dedicate your time is, is really fabulous. And the thing about volunteering at the Lake Spear Railroad Museum is you don't need to be a diesel mechanic. Uh, it helps. We'd love some. You don't need to be a welder. We'll teach you. But um, if you want to come down and join the crew and scrape paint and do that kind of stuff, there's plenty of work for you. Wednesdays are volunteer days. All right. And you get free donuts. Oh, that's, well, you might see me there. That's, uh, that's I'm a sucker for free donuts. Uh, Yvonne can attest to that. She's seen that in practice. Sadly. We have so far uh, managed to neglect, I think, the main purpose of your visit here, which is to talk about the North Shore Scenic Railroad and all the different things that people can do and the trains that they can ride. So why don't you, uh, why don't you assume that some of our listeners don't know anything about the uh, North Shore Scenic Railroad and, and, and what they can do up in Duluth. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, another one of Don Shank's incredible visions was to preserve the lakefront line, uh, which was built in 1886 from the depot in downtown Duluth to beautiful downtown Two Harbors on Minnesota's glorious North Shore. And that's about a 28-mile trip. We do take that trip on weekends called the Two Harbors Turn. You get to go out to Two Harbors, spend a couple hours over there for lunch and shopping and whatever, and then come back. Our bread and butter run is what we call the Duluth 
Zephyr. It's a, about a 70, 75 minute ride uh, from here to Lakeside and back. We have uh, other trains like, as you mentioned, uh, your favorite with your son that you were on, the music and pizza train. Right. Um, and we do uh, murder mystery trains. We do elegant dinner trains. We do the famous beer train. Uh, we do our pumpkin train. Uh, Thomas the Tank Engine comes in the first two weekends in August. And uh, we also do our Christmas City Express, uh, which is a holiday a tradition in the Northland. And um, we just have a whole bunch of different train options. If I may, I'll tell you that you can go to DuluthTrains.com. At DuluthTrains.com, our entire schedule is there. Everything you need to know about the railroad is there. Recently, we've been changing our business model a little bit. Um, and we're going to talk about Northern Lights Express coming up. But to change for the future, because you're always changing and evolving, we're finding that more of our passengers want what everybody wants, which is an experience. Right. And so what we've done is we've added first class under the glass. Uh, we have collected a couple of dome cars. These are the cars that have the glass bubble on the top. We have a one with a short dome with just the bubble in the middle. And then we've got our brand new Skyview, brand new to us, built in 1955, uh, with a full length dome where it's glass along the right. whole top of the car. And we call it first class under the glass. Uh, you get a couple complimentary cocktails with that. You get your own personal jacuterie and a chocolate chip cookie uh, for dessert. And uh, plus you get to ride in this incredible experience. There are only about, of the great domes, the full length ones, only 30 were ever made. Really? And of that, only about 23 still exist. And you can only ride in a handful of them. Uh, the other dome car, the short dome, there was about 258 of those made. Only about 80 still exist today. Wow. Most of them are in the possession of the class one railroads for their executive fleets or in private ownership. Very little opportunity exists to come to a train depot and go, I want to ride up there and be able to buy tickets for that. And so uh, we've been evolving our service to more focus on that first class service, uh, more dinner trains, um, more special events on the train. And um, and that seems to be uh, gaining popularity. But still, it's ma pon the kids on that 70 minute train ride uh, for either their youngsters very first train ride or in the case of grandparents, putting their kids and grandkids and grandkids on for their very first train ride while they share. And this is what we talked right. about before their train story. I guess that uh, that goes back just to what a rich history this area has in terms of the railroad business from, you know, down in Carlton, where I think uh, it was. Yep. You got, you got it. Northern Pacific Northern right outside. Pacific yep. Started, mm -hmm. started right there. Yep. Uh, I mean, this is it, it's it's amazing. And then, of course, you add to that uh, all the development that occurred, you know, during uh, really discovery of these uh, iron ranges and the Masabi range and before that, the Vermilion range. And uh, it was really it was two harbors, wasn't it? Really sort of open up the Masabi range. Two Harbors was the uh, terminus for the Duluth and Iron Range Railway, uh, which uh, started the Vermilion Range, as you said. You're absolutely right. And uh, that was out of uh, Two Harbors. That was Charlemagne Tower that started that enterprise. He was 75 years old when they started shipping iron ore out of the Vermilion Range, the very first iron ore mine in Minnesota. And it was the Merritts, as I mentioned, from Duluth who discovered the Masabi Range. Oh, so I had yeah. it exactly backwards. No, well, you got it. You can, you can tell me that, Yvonne. No. me all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm used to it. It's always a shock okay, when I'm right. not corrected. So all you can right, say, right. no, you're exactly wrong. You're 100% wrong. Well, no, you're wrong because you got so, the, the, the gist of the story is there's iron ore. We're here because of the iron ore. That's true. Thank and, you for being so gracious, Ken. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So I got it partially correct in some you weird did. way. But but uh, but anyway, okay. So so it was really Duluth that, that served the Masabi Range and Two Harbors right. that served the Vermilion Range. And the interesting thing about our line from here to Two Harbors, and this is to go to your point, that yes, Two Harbors
Harbors was the starting off point for that Duluth and Iron Range Railway up to Tower Sudan and the underground mine up there that was owned by Charlemagne Tower. Now, to build that railroad, they needed to steal it. And they stole it from a Duluth group of investors that had originally been planning to build a railroad from Duluth to northern Minnesota for whatever reason they didn't know. So they had a charter for a land grant. And you know about land grant. You build a mile of track, you get a square mile on either side. And they wanted this land grant railroad because that's how you're going to finance it. But this time, railroads had gotten a bad name because there were so many of them. They were like the dot coms of their day. Everybody wanted one, but very few people could figure out how to make money off of them. Right. So the land grants weren't being doled out by legislators and Congress like they used to be. So here in Duluth was this dormant Duluth and Iron Range Railway that was originally going to go straight up towards Hibbing and Virginia. Charlemagne Tower and his buddies needed a railroad to go to Lake Vermilion from two harbors. So they needed to steal this railroad, which they did. They told the owners of this railroad that they were going to put the money in. Mr. Tower was going to put the money in to build it. And they got all excited for finally, because it sat on on paper and with no money to build it. Right. Now here comes Charlemagne Tower. He's going to build this, this railroad from Duluth to the range. And it's going to go from Duluth to the range because that's what it says, Duluth right. and Iron right. Range. And that's what we're going to do. Well, so Charlemagne Tower and his son are made members of the board of directors for the Duluth and Iron Range Railway, along with a couple of other Duluthians, some well-known names. We'll leave some of the people's names out of this because uh, they were complicit in this arrangement. So they voted on the two towers, Charlemagne and his son, And then the next thing that they voted on, because now they had three of the five votes in the room, they had a a margin call. And a margin call is when the shareholders of a company are told and they vote on it, you got to put up more money. So the margin call was for $100 each. There were only three people in the room that had $100. (laughs) And that was Charlemagne Tower, his son, and the other co-conspirator. And so the margin call put $300 on the table and the other two owners and their subsequent sub owners were left out in the cold. And the next thing you know, the railroad's being built from two harbors up to Lake Vermilion and has nothing to do with Duluth. They get done with the railroad being built. They start shipping iron ore and they went to the state legislature and they said, hey, we built the railroad. We want our land grant. We want our one square mile on either side of the track all the way up because we told our bondholders that was going to secure their bond. Well, Duluth had figured this out by now and was quite upset about it, as you might expect. And they said, uh, no, the state legislature denied them their land grant because it wasn't Duluth and Iron Range. It was from two harbors. So begrudgingly in 1886, after completing the railroad in 1884, to get that land grant, they had to build from two harbors to Duluth, a line they did not need, did not want, and weren't (laughs) interested in because there was nothing in Duluth that they wanted. They wanted the iron ore, but they had to get the land grant to to satisfy the bondholders. And the only way they could do that was to finish the railroad to Duluth. Well, and we're so (laughs) glad that they did. We're so glad that they did. Well, listen, we are about out of time. I have one question because I know it's a passion of yours. Are we ever going to see, I told you the first time I came up to Duluth, it was by train. Right. Are we ever going to see a train between the Twin Cities and Duluth? The answer is yes. And the reason for that is this is a transportation alternative that works around the world. Why would we think that in northeastern Minnesota, in America, that we're any different from the industrialized world in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, in South America, in Central America, in Canada? Why do we think we're so different? We are not. So it will happen. The best best chance of that happening is right now the best opportunity to have a railroad between Duluth, Superior, and Minneapolis.
Minneapolis is the Northern Lights Express Project. And I know that because we've been working on it for over two decades. There's been a group of us that are dedicated to returning this passenger service, an alternative transportation mode for people in northeastern Minnesota, northwestern Wisconsin, and the communities along the way. We're in a perfect position to do it now. And the reason for that is all of the 20 years we have spent doing the studies, doing the research, doing the environmental, doing the routes alternative analysis, doing the feasibility studies, everything is done. We have a finding of no significant impact, a Fonzie, if you will, that says this is a shovel-ready project. We just passed the infrastructure law, $1.2 trillion, $16 billion of that is set aside specifically for trains connecting point A to point B, what they call pair cities, in about 150 to 200 mile distance. We're 158 miles from Minneapolis. Too far to drive, too short to fly. That's the Amtrak rule. We fit that model. And there's $16 billion out there that says it's only going to be spent on pair cities. Amtrak went to the Federal Railroad Administration and said, here are the 30 pair cities we want to connect on our Connect America plan. We're one of those 30 pair cities on that list that Amtrak wants to build to. Of the 30 pair cities on that list, only one project has a finding of no significant impact that took us 20 years to get. Wow. We are the only shovel-ready project. We were said by Amtrak, Mr. McHugh of Amtrak's uh, state-sponsored railway partnerships called us the most shovel-ready project in America for rail transportation. Minnesota is sitting on a $9 million budget surplus. That's after funding the Rainy Day Fund. It's a bonding year at the state legislature. There is plenty of money to invest $85 million in state funds, 20% of the project cost, to leverage $340 million of federal money to build a $420 million project that, you know what, if we don't do it this year, that $340 million that could come to Minnesota is going to go someplace else. And Minnesota taxpayers paid for that. I know everybody says it's free money from the federal government. It's not free money from the federal government. We paid it to the federal government. Our job in Minnesota is to get that money back and make sure that the taxpayers of Minnesota who paid for it are now going to benefit from it. Minnesota is a lost state. We send a dollar to Washington, we get 63 cents back. Southern states get $5 back. And one of the reasons we don't get a lot of money back is we don't have a military base. Right, right. If we had, you know, if we were Southern Californian, had, right. you know, the shipyards and all that, we'd get it back. This is an opportunity to level the playing field on what we get from money we have already invested. And this is a train that's going to change everything. All right. Well, Ken, I don't think the Northern Lights Express could ask for a more passionate advocate. Uh, Ken, we are out of time. I just can't thank you enough for uh, for spending time with us and, and telling us about the North Shore Scenic Railroad and the Lake Superior Railroad Museum. Please check these attractions out. Go to their websites and uh, you're going to be glad you did. Thank you so much. Tom, Yvonne, it's been a very enjoyable hour. I got to tell some stories and I got to have some memories and I love this opportunity. You do such a great job sharing these uh, uh, vignettes in your podcast with uh, all of your uh, listeners and, and focusing on Duluth because uh, for the love of the city, that's what you do. Well, thank so you. thank you for that well, and this opportunity. Thank you so much, Ken. That just about does it for this episode of For the Love of Duluth. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at For the Love of Duluth and subscribe to For the Love of Duluth, wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for For the Love of Duluth. That way, you will never miss an episode. We will see you next time.